The last few weeks we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and today we come to chapter 3 and have really kind of turned a corner uh, from, as you know, if you read uh, most of the Pauline literature, uh, the first half is theology and the second half is putting that theology into practice. And so this is the corner that we're now turning. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let your mind, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. May God bless the reading of his word. This week I was reminded of an old friend I haven't thought of in a while. His name is Daniel Adams. And Daniel was an artist and an art teacher. And when uh, he was worshiping with us in the church we were at before, he was teaching in a little Methodist school, Lon Morris, down in Jacksonville, Texas. He's now teaching at Harding University, by the way. And uh, not only is he an excellent teacher and a wonderful worship leader, he was our worship leader there too, uh, he's also just a great artist, I think. Uh, we own a piece of his artwork and treasure that. Uh, but one day he was telling me that Lon Morris had invited him to present and exhibit some of his religious artwork. And uh, I said, oh, that's great. I'd love to see that. I said, tell you what, when, the, when your exhibition there closes, why don't you just move it to our foyer and let all of our people enjoy your religious art as well? That, doesn't that sound like a good idea? Well, it, it, I thought it was, but there were some people that thought it wasn't. Because Daniel is kind of an avant-garde type artist, and all of his presentations are not easily understood. Uh, and some of them were quite shocking. And the one that really we caught the flack for was his portrait of Cain, as in Cain and Abel. And his portrait of Cain was basically a canvas, and I can't remember what color it was painted, but hanging in the middle of the canvas was an old pair of beat-up, dirty tennis shoes. And uh, it had a lot of meaning to Daniel, and I thought it was pretty cool, too. You wouldn't believe how many calls I got on that about having an old pair of dirty tennis shoes hanging in our wonderful church foyer. After all, the church is not a place for ugliness, is it? Well, if the church isn't a place for ugliness, we better not talk much about Cain then. Uh, 
And some of the rest of us maybe ought to quit showing up in the foyer as well. (laughs) Well, the reason I was thinking about that was that I was reading an exposition of this text written by one of my favorite preachers of all time, Fred Craddock. And Fred was talking about uh, how when he was a preacher in Oklahoma, that he heard that one of the churches there had commissioned a local artist to paint a portrait of Jesus for them to hang in their church foyer. And so when the picture was completed, there was a ceremony planned for the unveiling of this wonderful portrait of Jesus as imagined by this artist there in the church foyer. So Fred was interested in that, so he went. And he was there when they unveiled the portrait. And he says it was quite shocking because the colors were all dark and muted grays and deep purples and blacks. And when you looked at the face of Jesus, it was kind of ugly. It was kind of misshapen. He was very homely. Certainly not the picture of a man that you would be drawn to to get to know. And underneath the portrait, he had printed a verse out of Isaiah chapter 53. And some of you are way ahead of me, and you already know this verse, which reads, He had no beauty or comeliness that any should desire him. He was one from whom people turned their faces away. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Fred said that the painting didn't hang in the foyer very long. That the next time he visited that church, it had strangely disappeared. Because we don't want an ugly Jesus. We want a handsome Jesus. We want a Jesus that when we look into his eyes, we just want to grab him and hold him and, you know, just think, oh, this is just wonderful. We want to see his dazzling smile. And in fact, if you've noticed that in most modern pictures of Jesus, he's always smiling, isn't he? And wow, you know, he, obviously his smile is just, just so engaging and, it, and it's very bright. You know, he's done all the tooth whitening and everything. You know, just wow, there it is. Just doing. Now, the old pictures of Jesus didn't really have that. And, and you rarely ever saw in the medieval and renaissance pictures of Jesus him smiling. But he did glow, didn't he? If you've looked at those old pictures, if you see Jesus, his face is always glowing. Well, we know why that is. is because the artist that's depicting Jesus is trying to depict his glory. And particularly his resurrection glory. And how once Jesus was raised from the dead... That, that he appeared to his disciples in glory. Well, you can't really, you know, if you're talking about that, you can say Jesus died and he was buried, he was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he was glorious. But when you've just got a paintbrush, you have to do it some other way. So you make his face glow. Well, the text we just read said that not only was Jesus resurrected, And went to sit at the right hand of God. That we, and if we keep reading in the text to see the context, when we were baptized, we were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. And we too were resurrected. 
And we too are there with him and share in his glory. So where's your glow? You know, I started to wear my sunglasses today because I thought, you know, I'm going to be in a room full of people that have been resurrected with Jesus, who are no longer seeking the earthly things but the heavenly things, and they're all going to be glowing because Jesus glows. In fact, I think I have them in my pocket, but I don't really need them, do I? This is a real struggle that we have, I think, with our faith sometimes. Is that we have in one mind who Jesus is and his glory, and then we're told in Scripture that we share in that glory, and we look around and say, well, where is it? Why don't I see it? And more importantly, in our age, the question is, and why don't I feel it? Because that's what we want. We want to feel the glory of Jesus. We want to feel the fact that we have been raised with him. And the scripture tells us that our life has been changed. And we want to be able to experience that change. And for that change to be so drastic and tactile and beautiful and lovely and engaging. Well, we're not the first people to ask questions like this. The church in Colossae that this letter was written to were asking the same questions. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that there were a group in that church that thought they had the answers to that. They, they were able to tell the people who were asking questions like, well, why don't I feel the glory of Christ? Why isn't my life a big, glorious, wonderful experience? Well, this group had the answer. In fact, they had several answers as to why you common folk weren't experiencing how wonderful it was to be a Christian. And this group was really looking down on the other group. And remember how, how Paul, as he wrote this letter, was trying to lift their heads a little bit and say, you know, you're not really missing it. Maybe those other folks are the ones that are missing it. For example, this, this other group talked about what it was like to live a resurrected, glorious life. And they had a little phrase that's really hard to bring from Greek into English, but their little phrase that they described was, walking in the middle of air. And they just said, boy, if you are a Christian, you walk in the middle of air. And it was just that, that whoa feeling, you know? You're always up. You always have that smile on your face. You just always feel good. And in fact, if you are a Christian who's been resurrected with Christ, that, that they even had these little worship, private worship experiences where they got away from the rest of the church so they could do it the right way, you know? You know how those things go? Okay, well, they'd have those little worship services. Those things were going on even in the first century. And, and some of the people, they said would even float. The worship was so wonderful and so grand that some people would just rise in the air and just float around. They said, now, if you're not feeling that, you just don't have it. You know, you got to have that kind of experience. They also talked about how, on the other hand, we were to beat these bodies up and whoop them into submission. 
which has some truth to it. And Paul had to deal with that. But do you remember what their slogan was? We've mentioned it a couple of times already. Their slogan was, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's sort of like the, the diets that we go on today that if it tastes good, spit it out. Okay, well, if there's anything good about life, then you don't touch it, you know, you, you, because you're not a commoner. You're someone special. And Paul said, you know, it is true that there are things that we're supposed to stay away from as Christians, but you folks are, are taking that to such an extreme that really what you're doing is that, that, that you are making a show of being religious, that you're trying to impress other people, but it really doesn't amount to much. Because what you're doing is self-serving, self-promoting, and spiritually egotistical. And it has nothing to do with Jesus. And if we read this in uh, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, which is right before the section that we read, he said, really what you're doing is you're making up your own religion, you're sort of imagining what you think religion ought to be, and then you're calling it Christianity. Because that's what you want it to be. And so you go around and sort of convince yourself that's what it is. And you convince yourself that you've got it. Well, if it's so easy to get wrong, then what does Paul do to help us to get it more right and to be closer to it. Well, he reminds them of two things. I always like it when he just goes two things because I can kind of remember two things. And, and one of them, it's interesting. Uh, did Reed leave? Where are you, Reed? You're back at the back. Hi, Reed. You know, Reed and I didn't talk at all about what he was going to do there and I was going to do here. I don't know if Reed read ahead and I don't, you didn't look up my sermon uh, text, did you? Okay. But he talked about how there's a lot of things he doesn't understand, but that's okay because he's invited to participate. One of the things that Paul points out right here is that when you're raised with Christ, notice what he says, your life has been hidden with Christ. Now, we want it to be revealed. We want when we become Christians for everything to fall into place and everything just to make sense and especially for it to feel good. But Paul said, when you're a Christian, there are going to be a lot of things you just don't get and you don't understand because you don't know all about these kinds of things. And really what you're doing is entrusting your life to Christ. And trusting that even though you don't get it, that he has taken it and, and has, has put it into himself. And it's, it's hidden away in him. What a relief that is to me to know that right now I don't have to get it all. Because I've been around some folks that do get it all. And I don't like to be around them for very long because they know exactly how everything's supposed to be. They know exactly what you're supposed to think about everything. They, they know how you're supposed to feel about everything. They know all of these things. And I'm sitting here scratching my head saying, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see and, and getting sort of confused. And Paul said, that's okay because right now you don't know it all. Right now you don't get it all. 
Right now, you don't feel it all because your life is hidden in Christ. And when He is revealed, then you will be revealed. Whenever He is revealed, then all of this other will be real. Paul says in another place, he says, Then you will know as you have been fully known. Right now, trust that God knows you completely. He embraces you completely. But you've also got to embrace that you don't know Him completely. You don't know yourself completely. And you don't know all of life completely. So we live with that tension there. And Paul really gets upset with people that are a little too egotistical about their faith and just have it down pat and know it too well. Remember, that's part of the problem we had with the Corinthian church too, wasn't it? These folks that had become super Christians. But then he goes on and he says, now, that doesn't mean there's some things, that there's not some things that you ought to be aware of and be working on in your life right now. Even though you don't get it all, even though you don't embrace it all, even though you don't understand it all, there are some things that you are to give your attention to. He says, set your mind on the heavenly things, not on the things of earth. And he gives a couple of lists as examples. Now, these are not the end-all list, of complete list, but he gives us two that are very interesting lists. The first list is found in verse 5, and it has to do with sexuality. Ooh, the Bible even talks about stuff like that. He said, if you want to begin working on something, let me give you a lifelong assignment for you to work on, all right? Uh, Now, I started to say that this first list maybe has more to do with men, and the second list has to do with women, because the second list is going to have to do with talking, okay? (laughs) But I didn't want to be accused of being a sexist. But it does seem like... That, that this first list, maybe he's, he's tapping the men of the congregation on the shoulder and saying, here's some things that, you know, you can work on through your life. And it's probably going to be sort of a lifelong project for you to work on. Verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, put these things to death. These things are earthly things. He begins with sexual immorality or fornication. Then he says impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Now, the interesting thing is that's sort of an outside-to-inside list. The outside part is stop doing anything that's sexually immoral. If you are doing something that is sexually immoral, then stop it. But don't just stop there with stopping what, you know, the actions. He goes on to say, but the impurity and the passion and even that evil desire that's in there. Work on that too. Guys, this is one reason why pornography is very dangerous, because it gets in there in the middle part of that, in the feelings, and then it can work its way outward to the outward parts as well. So, he says, he starts from the outside, stop doing things that are sexually immoral, but then start working on the inner things too. And he works all the way to the very core of what this is all about, and the very core of it is greed. You ever thought about that? That greed is really the source of sexual struggles. What is greed? Greed is wanting more. Greed is not being satisfied with what you have, but thinking that there's something else out there that's better, and that you've got to keep looking for what's better and more thrilling and more engaging and more fulfilling. And you know what I've got's not good enough. I've got to keep pushing it and pushing it till I can find more. You guys know that, don't you? It's a great insight that Paul had. 
that really the source that we really need to get down to, and if we really want to start working on ourselves and our behavior, we start asking ourselves about greed. And why can't we be satisfied with who we are, what we are, where we are, and what the Lord has given us? And then he really caps it off by saying that all of these things are really idolatry. Now, it says greed, which is idolatry, but you can ask Reed, he'll give you a Greek lesson. The singular verb can be plural too, can't it? All right. So you, all five of these things, really, this whole process is idolatry. Because if you're being driven most of all in your life by your sexual desires, then sex is your God. That has become the ultimate thing. And if you're willing to push aside the other good things in your life for that, then what is it that you are worshiping? Okay, we've beaten up the guys long enough. Let's talk about the women. No, let's talk about all of us, all of us, all of us. Uh, I didn't say that. Can, let's rewind the tape and we'll start over again. But there's another list here. And this list works from the inside out. Isn't that interesting? Paul goes outside in and then he goes inside out. He says, here's some other things you need to work on. Your anger, your wrath, your malice, your slander, and your abusive or hurtful language. You see how that works itself out? You've got this little mm, inside of you about something you don't like, someone you don't like, and you let that foster and you let that grow, and it turns in from anger to wrath, where it just is really, just really ticks you off, and then before long it's malice and you're thinking bad thoughts, and before you know it, you're saying bad things about people and you're saying bad things to people, and you're hurting them with your words. Boom, there it goes. Paul said, work on those things. And then he goes on to continue that, and he says, and don't lie to each other. You know, the, 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 what, what's going on with our tongue and what we say is so important. It's so important. Just the casual words that you say to one another you know, can build a marriage or tear a marriage down, can build a friendship or tear a friendship down, can build a church or tear a church down just by the exchanges that we have as we pass by and stop and engage one another. So Paul's given some assignments here. He says, you know, these people may want to get together and hold hands and float in the air, but if you really want to talk about what it means to be uh, someone who's, who's thinking about things that are above more than things on the earth, then you're going to be thinking about things like, like getting your, your body in check and making sure you're really worshiping the true God. And you're going to be concerned about how you address people and what you say to them and, and are your words helpful or not. By the way, if you wanted to read on past our text, verse 12, he gives a list of what it really means to be spiritual and the things that you really work on when you're spiritual. And notice how opposite they are from groups that maybe pull themselves away and say, well, we're more spiritual than those folks. Because what you really are if you're spiritual is you're compassionate. You work on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and peace. You know, though that's your assignment if you really want to be a spiritual person. And Paul sums it all up in that wonderful verse 11, which sounds a lot like a verse out of Galatians as well, where he talks about there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. Well, here he, he gives a different list. He says, remember... That there's no longer Greek or Jew and circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And he caps it off with some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. And if, you, if you're not a person that easily memorizes Scripture, well, 
put this in your heart. You know, put this, tuck it away so that it's readily accessible. And as you walk through your life, as you encounter others, this is just a portion of a verse that can change everything about who you are and how you relate to them. He says, Christ is all. He, he, he's, he, he's the summation of everything. He is the ultimate of everything. And as we're looking at our life goals and where we spend our time and what we do, let's remember that my main goal is Christ and to be like Him and with Him and to bring Him honor. Christ is all. But then, wow, listen to the last part. Christ is all and He is in all. How dare you violate another person? How dare you say something less than helpful to another person? How dare I treat someone less than Christ himself? For Christ is all, and he is in all. I want to be seated at the right hand of God with Christ and don't understand that totally. But do know that if I give myself to him, he takes me and holds me there. And even though it's hidden, it will be revealed. And one day, we will glow. Let's stand and sing.